Tactical Breakdown Podcast, Episode 25, Part 2. This is the continuation from Episode 25 of our Instructor's Roundtable on Use of Force and Defensive Tactics. Let's jump back into it. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown. A podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. Welcome back. This is part two of our three-part episode pulled from our Instructor's Roundtable on Use of Force and Defensive Tactics. If you are jumping right into this second part episode, I would recommend you go back and check out part one. It'll give you some context as to the conversation, but it's all good nonetheless. Thank you for being here. Again, a huge thank you to our sponsor for this episode of Blower Tactical Systems. Make sure to check them out at blowerspear.com and use the code TACTICAL if you're looking at purchasing any courses on there. They're going to help you out. So let's get back to the table with our instructors on use of force and defensive tactics. Here we go. One thing, I, I cycled back my head finally, uh, caught up with everything else you guys are talking about. When we talk about additional training, because um, I was brought up earlier and, and what we can do for additional training, what systems are acceptable and or, and or unacceptable as far as an agency perspective? Because that's that's a big thing, right? I mean, Tony's Tony, the spear system's a little bit different. I mean, like I said at the beginning of the show, I don't think there's an agency that out there that ha- doesn't implement that in some way, shape or form. Um, but like you always say, it's, it's kind of that, I can't remember who there's a, I can't remember who did the video for you um, or part of the interview, but essentially it's, it's the three seconds before the fight, right? That, yeah, that, 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 was that, that Bob Willis said in, uh, holy shit, it was like 1993 or 95. Right. Um, and, Way back. Well, it was, it was just, you know, my whole thing is like, you know, in that line, it's one of the, one of our slides in our presentation, like, you know, uh, you know, control tactics don't work in out of control scenarios. Uh, and I'm talking specifically about the tactics. You've got to weather the ambush. And, and when you look at at violence inside the reactionary gap, uh, you know, you look at cops getting sucker punched, having their guns taken, getting knocked to the ground. Um and I studied thousands and thousands of, of these. In fact, uh, uh, John would remember this from back in Fletzy. You know, uh, you know I, I was, that's where I first met him years ago in the 90s. But I created a, uh, um, it, was, it was a funny name. It, it was called How to Watch a Dashboard Video. And it was this, these eight stages of reverse engineering to study, you know, this, this uh, you know, dashboard video because I was like looking at the way people were training and it was okay. How do you get out of a headlock? How do you stop gun grab? What do you do when the guy punches you? And I'm going, well, wait a minute. There's a whole bunch of uh, uh, telegraphic micro movements before that. But if you start everything from the headlock, from the rear strangle, from the tackle, from the gun grab, you're, and this is, you know, years before I came up with the, you know, before the 10,000 hours, things became famous and, and, and I was able to say, you're always doing that one rep of allowing the attack to happen. And so the, the, you know, the, the notion here really, the notion here really is, is how can we, you know, we talk about getting to the left of the ambush, left of bang, right? So, but everyone practices, and I say everyone just to be general, to generalize and be provocative, because I want people to really get safer and think about this. If you say head on a swivel, if you if you say head on a swivel left of ambush and then all your training is to the right of the ambush meaning hey guys if you see him target glance your gun do this do that okay guys let's get on our uh, scenario gloves okay partner stand in ready stance okay grab the gun and go like you're jumping dissonance you're jumping the emotional psychological pre-contact cues you're you're and this is really where the interleaving the understanding of, of a three-dimensional interleaving can come into play where I'm teaching instead of, I, I used to make a joke 
when people would ask me if I did weapon retention, I would say, you don't have a holster? And they go, yeah, we do. I go, well, weapon retention is your holster. And uh, they go, huh? I go, weapon protection is your skill set, your mindset. Weapon retention is your holster. You don't want a retention drill. If a bad guy's grabbing your gun, you you need to be fighting. And it just changed the emotional content of of that scenario. Uh and, and they were built slowly. And I love something that uh, that Chris said earlier about the high fidelity scenario. And I loved, you know, the, the, the reframe that you don't you don't need to scare the shitter people and have their heart rate at 188 beats a minute. You can intelligently stress inoculate and, and you just got to know what you're doing. The so it was actually a, a gun uh, a weapon protection course that Bob saw me teach. And he came up to me after and he said, you teach the three seconds before the fight that the rest of us teach. And it was a, it was a huge compliment, but that's been my niche is that if you don't weather that ambush and we have a, a an expression here and I'm glad we could swear in the show, swear on the show. And it's, it's, it goes like this. It says, if you're scared shitless, unconscious or dead, you're not getting to your next move. Scared shitless, unconscious, or dead, you're not getting to your next move. You've got to weather the ambush. All, like all fights are dangerous, but the most dangerous fight is the ambush because neurologically it hijacks executive function. That's why, you know, every, every time you see a cop get dragged by a car, someone goes, why are they grabbing the car? They're not grabbing the car. That's the cross-extensive reflex locking on. If I grab, if I'm on a, on a, on a door frame, you know, using that as a leverage to post to post on the car and they slam the car and drive and I micro flinch, I'm locked onto the car. Nobody thinks they can stop a car, but it's simple physiology, not, not, not understanding. That's why they teach like an electrical school. If you're going to check, if a, a, a wire has any current on it, they always tell you to use the back of your hand, right? So if this happens, you don't, that's not where they find you fried, right? So this cross extensor reflex, that's everything that was like, so the, the little spear system became like, it's like your body's biological airbag. And if you learn how to weaponize it so that, that you micro flinch and pop out, it's like an airbag deploying between you and the threat. So, um, it's, it's, it's all based on physiology and neuroscience, and, and it seamlessly integrates whether you're doing a Gracie Grapple, Krav Maga, Control Force, PPCT, like any, whatever your system is. I'm, I don't talk about the complex motor skills. You know, that's like arguing, like, what's better, like a SIG or a Glock. Like, if you're scared shitless, unconscious, or dead, it doesn't matter that you had a gun that you couldn't get to. Yeah, it's really, that's what I was, the point I was getting, you, you made it perfectly, is that, Agencies have fully implemented what you guys teach and what you've come up with because it isn't that it doesn't fall into that use of force category, essentially. Right. I mean, it's your it's that reaction. It's that officer's instinctual reaction to danger and getting them through that initial first few seconds. Now, when we take about taking that and transitioning into something different is where I think we start to find a lot of issues. Um, You know, when we talk about officers taking training on their own time, I mean, I mean, I would Chris and, and John and Scott would have a better idea of this than than I would, but we've seen it where officers have taken like a crab training course and implemented that on the street, and now they're doing an investigation and use of force, and they say, "Well, where did you learn that technique?" Well, I learned it in my in my dojo or in my school, and they said, "Well, that's not approved." Now, now there's an issue. So, no. has that now that hasn't happened? Can well, you guys? No, it, it, that, that, it, people will say that. Yeah. But it doesn't hold any weight. Bottom line is, at least, again, here in the United States, and I know Canada is just a hair different, but basically we have the same rules and laws on objective re- reasonableness. The truth of the matter is, the, the whether I learned it from uh, outside source, inside source, when it comes to the actual determination of whether it's actually an excessive use of force, the question is, was it reason- could, could a reasonably well-trained, similarly situated officer have done the same thing under similar circumstances. That's what the, that's what the standard is. So the, the question isn't, uh, you know, again, I'm not suggesting that we don't qualify with firearms, um, but the truth of it, 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 do, it does not really go to the point of whether the force was reasonable. Was deadly force reasonable? That's the question. Um, the example I've always used is, uh, you know, if you're in a knockdown drag out fight and uh, you're, you're trying to keep your weapon in, uh, you know, and you're fighting over him. And as I love the term that Tony, you're trying to protect your, what, you know, you're fighting. And uh, if there's a brick nearby, a 
chunk of concrete or something like that, guess what? If you use that and you strike somebody in the head, um, that's deadly force. Now, nobody's going to come back later and say, uh, you know, hey, we'd like to see the training records on your, uh, you know, brick use uh, training <laughs> class. It's not going to happen. So people, there's a kind of a misnomer out there about that. What the court's really looking at at that moment, they want to know, uh, again, the, the prevailing case law in the United States on that is Scott v. Harris, where that comes into a case of, um, you know, running somebody off the road into an embankment. Supreme Court said clearly that it was a use of deadly force. The only question they wanted to go back is based on the totality of circumstances, was that reasonable at the time? And in that particular case, um, the court found it was reasonable. So I, I, I've always, uh, now the, I think this is more on the, um, the officer themselves to do your homework. My friend Kevin Davis out of Akron, uh, great use of force mind, has great use of force investigation book. And uh, I've heard Kevin say, you know, a billion times, vet your instructors, vet your training companies. Uh, there's some people out there doing a great job and there are people just doing crap training, uh, trying to make a buck. Um, that's not evidence-based, science-based. So that's on the officer to make sure they're really vetting um, people properly. But again, it doesn't matter that you learn something in the dojo. The question is, was it reasonable at the moment force was used? So that, that's that's maybe a myth that if you were sorry, that's where I left off was the myth stuff. I think so. No, that's that perfect. Yeah, no, sorry. I should have prefaced it. That was, so a question that had come in um, was when, because they've been told from other instructors that if I come into a course and the instructor says, you can't take this because we don't teach it um, because their agency says, well, it's not taught. We don't teach it. So we don't approve it. Therefore you can't use it. Um, yeah, that's kind of where that had question had come from. I may have phrased it uh, incorrectly. So, so again, at least here in the United States, and again, I, I bottom there's a difference between policy and law, right? Uh, some people think that if you violate a policy, then you've that you've also by proxy violated the law. Uh, so the example I use on that is, um, let's say we have an agency policy that says you have to wear a pink cowboy hat while you're out on patrol. Just a ridiculous policy. Well, guess what? If you want to work for that agency, that's the requirement. You got to wear a pink cowboy hat on patrol. Now, I go out tonight. I get myself involved in a uh, deadly force encounter, for example. I use deadly force, and um, you know, everything. The smoke is clear, and we come back and realize that my, um, you know, my force was good. It goes to court. The, <laughs> the judge could care less whether I have my pink cowboy hat on. It's completely irrelevant to the determination of reasonableness. Now, my agency could fire me for it. Okay, that's possible. But when you're talking about determining the reasonableness of a use of force incident, it literally is the severity of the crime or the, the you know totality of circumstances uh, from the perspective of a reasonable officer on the scene at the moment force was used. That is a standard that all courts in the United States are required to follow. And Adam, I just want to, uh, to support what you're saying, though, I think that where that myth comes from is not that the uh, courts have ruled that you can't use X, Y, and Z training or anything like that. It's individual agencies, yep. right, expressing some kind of uh, hesitancy, fear. So the example would be like, you know, a, a young officer wants to put in for a, uh, you know, underwater knife fighting, you know, class or something like that. Agency doesn't see it as being uh, relevant to the job function, so they deny it. Maybe that perpetuates the myth. But there's one other uh, factor that uh, agencies do concern themselves with. And I know one of the questions that was submitted before the uh, talk was something about, gee, why doesn't my agency, you know, prove me to go to this training class and, and that kind of stuff. Something agencies concern themselves with is uh, the legal doctrine of negligent training. And they uh, don't always understand maybe how it works or they're worried about, okay, if we send the officer, meaning pay for the officer or send them on duty and they receive some sort of training, uh, has the agency tacitly approved that training, even though they're not real sure, you know, what the outline is, they have no way of knowing what the instructor is going to say, is now this on-duty employee going to come back and use something and could rightfully so later go, wait a minute, this is how I was trained. You know, I, I went to the, the, you know, brick fighting school or whatever was mentioned. And I use it all the time. You know, I'm hitting people with bricks left and right. You sent me, it's not my fault. I thought this was official training from my department. So there's other little subtle nuances there, but it's not uh, the courts are going to say, where'd you get that training from kind of thing. 
That's a good point. And I've heard, heard a lot of guys over the years go, you know, uh, is this, is this, uh, post approved, state approved, T close approved. Uh, it's not. And, and I would always explain politely, like, like your, your policy or your state says this is the minimum amount of, uh, uh, skills that you need to be exposed at and proficient in. They don't say you can't get better, which goes back to what you said early on in Scott, like, you know, you need to, you need to be doing more, and I wrote an article for Caliber Press uh, a couple of years ago uh, about this saying, like, you need to be showing up to work as if this is the NFL. Uh, and, and, but it's 24 7, 365 days. You got to show up in shape. You got to stay in shape. And you don't know when someone's going to hit you illegally. And, and, and you don't always know who is the, has the ball or where the ball is. But, you know, uh, you know, pick your sport, whatever you like, but you got to be in shape and you got to do it on your own. And then there'll be team practices. But if you want to be, you know, uh, uh, you know, rest in peace, Kobe Bryant, but you want to be the guy who is training at four in the morning because you want to be the best. And, you know, anyone in law enforcement who doesn't think that the job is dangerous, I mean, it blows my mind when I see officers who don't take their training seriously and aren't in the best shape that they can be or at all complacent about it. But that's all. Chris, any, any points from a Canadian uh, Commonwealth perspective there or kind of the same, same idea as it is in the U S. So I have not encountered a single criminal case where an officer has been, um, convicted because they used a technique that was not provided by specifically by their police department. So the question will always come down to is based upon the officer's perception at the time the officer decided to use force, was force necessary? In other words, was it required at the time? Uh, and was the force the officer used, was it acceptable? Uh, in other words, within the realm of reasonableness, was it proportionate to the harm that the officer was facing? And not the question isn't where was that provided to the officer in training? I'll give you an example of that. We had uh, an officer come into the academy uh, from the UK. The officer was a, had been a professional rugby player and a phenomenal officer in training. Uh, but shortly after the officer graduated the academy, got in a physical fight where an individual attacked him and the officer uh, used a headbutt on the individual. And uh, so the executives asking me, they're, they're all up in arms going, but we don't teach headbutts. I'm going, it doesn't matter. That's not the question is what was the harm the officer faced? What was a, an appropriate response that was proportionate to the harm in order to control that level of violence? And, you know, if you could have punched the individual in the head and we teach punches or elbow strikes or whatever, then headbutts within the range of proportionality. So it's, it's the same here. And, and it's not only training, it's um, officers bring all kinds of skills and backgrounds from their entire life. Uh, that may not be formal combative training, but high level athletics, different types of uh, skills from that level that the brain under rapidly unfolding. And, and Tony mentioned that, that short stimulus response recognition prime decision making. Look, the decision isn't, oh, I'm going to access something I used in my training. It's where's the threat, and then there's a stimulus and a response. And whatever is the most heavily programmed, myelinated motor response in the officer's brain for that context is what's going to come out. So was it proportionate? Was it required? Those are the questions. Great. We're starting to get into a lot of the uh, smaller, the micro stuff now. Um, different techniques have been brought up and things like that. So let's, I mean, that was one of the things that we were going to talk about was techniques, um, training, dis different systems, things like that that are acceptable, aren't acceptable. Maybe play, maybe things that we're moving into or moving away from. Um, we could start with uh, with talking about techniques that shouldn't be used anymore or should be being brought in. Or we could talk about training systems. Does anybody have a preference? Well, listen, let me uh, start with something that doesn't work. And uh, <laughs> that sounds fun. Should we all get comfortable or? Uh, yeah, get comfortable. It's going to take a long, no. Uh, you know, in law enforcement police training, 
uh, 17-step baton, uh, you know, routines, this, okay, to the front and then to the back and then the side and then all this stuff and trying to memorize that. Uh, what else doesn't work uh, in the long term? Uh, training in something, anything, once a year, twice a year. That's probably not going to work. Uh, what else doesn't work? Uh, 15-step handcuffing techniques for people that don't want to get handcuffed. Um, what else doesn't work? Um, fighting. We used to call it the Red Man in the Academy. Now it's called, I think, Sustained Resistance uh, Fighting. It's a guy dressed up in pads, and they hand you a, uh, a limp like a uh, baton, and then this monster comes after you. And uh, I'll never forget, like, a, a really smart officer I used to work with said, you know, um, if this ever happens to me on the street and this monster who I cannot hurt is coming after me, you know what move I'm going to use? And I was like, well, I'm, I'm all ears. because This guy was kind of a proficient fighter. He goes, I'm going to run as fast as I freaking can away from that guy because he's trying to kill me. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Because furthermore, uh, somebody starts shooting at me and they got the drop on me in a car stop as opposed to trying to draw, acquire the target and back up and, and move my feet really quick backwards and go back to the car like we're trained in. He's like, I'm going to create an angle between this guy and run as fast as I can the other direction. And I went, uh, that's not how we're trained. You know, and wait, I thought cops, we, you know, we can't little things like that, like realistic types of things. If someone's trying to kill you, get away from them, you know, uh, defend yourself and, if you think, you know, I'm going to memorize this very complicated technique and I'm sort of practice it once a year when it's time for uh, defensive tactics, refresher training. And somehow, somehow, you know, 10 years from now, I'm going to remember that and I'm going to use that in a real uh, live fight with a determined aggressor, not my fellow officer who's dressed up in pads or has gloves on or is going, hey, guys, 25 percent speed on this one. I mean, a real fight. Yeah. Uh, I think we're, we're kidding ourselves. Yeah. So uh, I'll just add on to what Scott's saying. Uh, there's some things, for example, uh, handcuffing, right? Everybody, there's a thousand different techniques. And like Scott said, uh, I remember us going uh, going through some uh, training. It was like an eight or nine step thumb lock, quit, whatever. I, and uh, so I've always thought, listen, um, there's, you know, a couple different ways of handcuffing. To me, the most important thing, and Scott, you alluded to this earlier, the most important thing about handcuffing is get them on quickly. So instead of requiring somebody, well, you have to do a speed cuffing technique. That's just what we teach. Or you have to do non-weapon hand. Or you do hand. At the end of the day, the priority in handcuffing is getting them on quickly. So I'm going to show you three or four, and then I'm going to we're, we're going to practice. And guess what? I'll, we'll figure out which one works the best for you as an individual, and that's the one we're going to spend time on. Let you use it in scenario based training and things like that. Um, got Chris Serino out of Ohio. Great, a lot of people know Chris, and uh, he's doing some fantastic work. Um, and a lot of you might know him from Top Shot. But Chris told me this. He said. Uh, you know, I kind of said, what are your thoughts on isosceles versus Weaver versus modified? That's stupid conversation. To me, I say it's a stupid conversation because it's whatever works for you. Meaning, um, listen, if I have a, a new officer on the range and uh, let's say they're shooting isosceles and uh, it's not working for them, but they modify and they do a modified Weaver. Okay. And they're, they're hitting the target. They're performing well. Then I'm probably going to let them perform the way that they're naturally inclined to perform well. Now, again, I know the arguments for having, uh, you know, isosceles and uh, uh, squared up body armor and things like that. But let's find out what their natural position is and see if we can't hone that a little bit. Um, you know, I use the example, uh, Craig Biggio, uh, Major League Baseball player, had one of the most goofed up stances you've ever seen in the history of the game. Well, you know, you would never teach somebody to do it that way. <laughs> you just wouldn't teach it. But at the end of the day, it worked for him. He was very successful doing it. Why would we want to go in and try to modify and change that unless it's unsafe? So listen, I don't care if you teach speed cuffing, weapon hand, non-weapon. I really don't care at all. What's the fastest way for you to get cuffs on for you individually? And I think that's sometimes that's instructor driven, right? We just do it the way we learned it and we, or our, our agency tells us we have to. I think instructors, we got to be a little bit more open to, hey, What's, what comes naturally to them? Because everybody on, on the panel tonight knows that that's probably what they're already primed and leaning towards doing in a system one response anyways. 
Yeah, and I think along with that, John, part of the the problem from an instructor perspective is instructors who focus on technique rather than outcome. And Tony's already mentioned that. Yep. And you can you can look at take a takedown for example, a simple balance displacement takedown, whether that's a head off shoulders, shoulders off the hips, an armbar takedown, whatever. But if as we're teaching that technique, if we're not drilling the philosophy and the principle and the goal into the student's mind of where you, they, the subject is now, where they you want them to be, and the principles of how to disrupt balance, you know, we really should spend a lot less time being so focused on technique yep. and getting officers to 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 think about that because we're actually setting them up for performance um, issues, performance errors by having them focus on technique rather than goal and outcome. Totally agree. Right. The kids at the academy shouldn't uh, be hyper concerned about failing out of the academy because they missed, you know, step seven of 17 about handcuffing. You know, like Chris said, it should be like, were the cuffs, you know, put on, uh, like John said, was it put on in a safe way? There's a variety of ways that can happen. And then was it, are they able to do it in the context of what they're really going to face in the field? And any instructor who's teaching some complicated technique, I mean, maybe there's a a rationale for learning those things, but the question that would occur to me is, has this been tested, you know, tested in a fight, not tested by other DT instructors. Is this the flavor of the week? Did you go to a class and learn some new technique and now you're going to go train other cops it because it's kind of neat or is it because it's super effective, Right. And in fights, uh, it's fast, it's messy, it's it's hard to, to get people, um, you know, handcuffed. It's hard to get people under control. You do need things that are kind of easy to remember because let's not forget, defensive tactics is one of about a million things that we're asking uh, young men and women who are police officers to be good at, right? Uh, now they're going to be human trafficking experts, they're terrorism experts, they shoot a variety of weapon systems. They got to be good at de-escalation, community policing, social media. Now we're going to take pictures and you know, pose for the camera. There's a gazillion things that cops have to be able to do at a moment's notice now. And so naturally as instructors, I think, you know, we want to make things that are simple. Uh, here's an acronym you can remember, or here's a simple concept you can use and it'll be successful most of the time. You know, there's time to learn exotic techniques and time to specialize and time to learn you know, the more uh, sophisticated things, but, you know, your average patrol officer needs sort of a, a five, you know, techniques are going to work a lot. He reverts to them in fear upon sudden attack, sudden surprise, uh, surprise ambush. It's going to work. It's going to function. Um, that's why I like, you know, the guys in the panel, they're talking about things that are real, realistic based stuff. Yeah. And, and along with, along with what you said there, Scott, I appreciate that comment is, recognizing, um, and I don't know what your guys' perspective are as instructors, you have abundance of experience this, but what I've seen is, you know, we've got X amount of time to train police officers and we spend far too much time doing technique-based, skill-based performance rather than let's get out of that as soon as possible and start getting into context-relevant, adding resistance, adding complexity so the officer's actually learning how to use that skill um, in a judgment probabilistic type of operational environment. And so who cares about technique? Yeah. And I just think I, I'm not trying to plug Tony, but I mean, from the first time I understood about the flinch response stuff, like well, he, he, he says, hey, you know, we're going to take something that's already naturally occurring in these environments. And then we're going to tell you how to work off of it. Right. I mean, anybody who's ever uh, worked with Tony or has been through spear training at some point in time, their, their life, they know that that's where that all came from. Now you've done obviously Tony a ton of different things off of that, but you know the the basic concept of flinch response that we learned twenty years ago uh, or fifteen years ago or so. You know, um, uh, I think the first time I met you with Fletzy, it was probably two or thousand two or three. So it's been a while, and um, and uh, but you were built. You're doing exactly what everybody here is saying. Hey, take something very non complicated. In fact, you said natural. So, yeah, it's so it's funny when people come to the class, like, hey, did you bring your asset? And they're like, oh, shit, did we forget something? I said, did you bring your physiology, biomechanics, psychology? And everyone starts to laugh. There's, you know, there's something that, that, that I want to add to this specific conversation. And that's, you know, we get, okay, interleaving, 
more realistic scenarios. Let's get out of the the like the the the, the technique micro micromanaging of ourselves or the class or the students and have them doing, you know, uh, uh, scenarios where they got to make decisions, they got to communicate, and that ties into, you know, the, the questions that you're asking, John, and it's Socratic and all that. But what I want to point out for everyone is that self awareness is the key. And self-awareness is is that ability for us to realize, oh, shit, I need to change what I'm doing right now. So I've always said that that like a well-trained person knows a bunch of moves, but a really, really skilled person knows when to abort those moves. And so you can have, you know, and this I, I, I alluded to this earlier about this like theoretical egalitarian bell, bell curve where we teach the same uh, uh, skill set to the smaller female, smaller male officer, the larger, you know, to the Thor and Rambo in the academy, in service, whatever it is. And everyone learns the same moves in the department. And we, you, we, uh, I forget it was said, uh, you know, the, the, one of the myths were that, that I think it was Scott that said, you know, like when you leave your training, like, like really that was the minimum standard. And if you're serious, you need to keep training and you need to explore. But there's something that I always go back to when I look at at something in the news and I'm going, oh, shit. What was it that that kept that officer in that fear loop there where they couldn't transition mm-hmm. to another weapon system, where they couldn't either just pop away and back off and, and create space or couldn't engage? You know, so, you know, we, we were talking about uh, um, uh officers earlier and as a, a joke I always like to make is that some police officers think backup means move away and like what stops somebody from moving in to help somebody and and in all my years now 43 years I realized that it's our our limited understanding of the neural circuitry of fear of understanding how to use fear as a fuel as opposed to this oppressive force that creates stagnation and uh, that's an interesting thing that that everyone needs to be talking about or exploring in the context of scenario training where we say, well, go pull that guy out of the car. And so Chris goes and he demos it, but you know, Chris is 225 pounds and 30 years doing, I'm I'm guessing how much you weigh, you know, but, uh, um, and he goes and he grabs the guy and I guarantee that every small officer in the class is if, unless they're suffering from Dunning Kruger effect, they're going, well, it's easy for him. He's big and he's an instructor. And nobody puts their hand up because if you're a recruit, you want the check in the box, you want to graduate. Your focus is on, I just got to graduate. Yeah. So there's a whole other area I'd love you guys to uh, you know, think about and everyone listening to this is like, how do we teach people more about managing fear and being able to articulate that? Because at the end of the day, you know, getting your gun out of your holster or palm striking somebody or taking cover or making, calling 911, whatever, whatever it is, calling for backup, uh, that's got to go through the fear loop in, in, in that decision-making loop. I remember uh, we're uh, teaching a uh, emergency services fire department all about the, 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 the psychology of fear and, and stuff like this. And the, uh, the captain comes to me after and he says, you know, one of my guys, you made me think of a story where one of my guys calls and he, he's uh, on the radio going, okay, what? the house is on fire and he's screaming. And when they finally got it under control, he goes up to me and says, Hey, we couldn't understand you. Like, like, was this your house? He goes, no. Was your family in there? No. He goes, then you don't need to scream like that. It wasn't your house. Like, but it was like, he, you know, he was new to it and, and he just couldn't get, you know, he couldn't get it together. So like, this is an area that I'm insanely passionate about because I really believe if I had a choice between, just teaching somebody how to recognize fear and manage it or teach them all the skills of like all four of us have, like what are, what are our three favorite moves? That person could still freeze with all the, like the, I call it the Frankenstein model where we're taking the best of all these martial art combative systems. At the end of the day, if a stimulus gets introduced too quickly, that executive function gets hijacked. What are we doing right there? So everything everyone's saying is, 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 is so valid but I, I, I really want to pound that home uh, for everybody is, you know, got and the way you, you the way you learn more about yourself and managing fear is what Chris has been talking about and what John was talking about. I mean, everyone is. But Chris, 
and and John in in particular is, is intelligent scenarios. Yeah. Oh yeah. It, you guys bring up a lot of points and, and it kind of draws me back to one of the other things that one of the points that somebody had asked questions about, which was uh, lowest common denominator training and going back to the training methodologies for instructors and, and bringing instructors in, um, you know, when you talk about scenarios or de- developing scenario based training models or re- uh, reality based training models, um, there there's definitely some it, people that aren't trained in doing that try to simulate a a proper scenario, but do it to the detriment of their students. Um, can somebody give an example of that and then maybe how we can correct that? Yeah. So we call them training scars, right? That's what we're talking about, right? Where um, we, you know, Ken Murray uh, had, he said it a long time ago, he talked about the unintended consequences, well-intentioned training, meaning we've run people through scenarios and things like that. And, uh, and we realize that, by complete unintentionally, we maybe have put some bad techniques or things into uh, the file. If you want, you know, if you, I always look at uh, system one thinking as uh, like a big file folder in your head. And basically when, from a recognition, prime decision-making standpoint, we see a, a particular set of behaviors uh, we're primed to go and use a certain, um, uh, a certain response. And when we have bad stuff in the files, unfortunately, it'll default to that as well. So I've got I actually use a video in class and it's uh, no, no disparagement to the um, uh, Michigan State Police that might be on here. I love those guys. I do a lot of work with them. But uh, there's a video of a, a Michigan State trooper behind a guy um, in uh, armed robbery suspect and I-94 outside of the city of Detroit. And if you watch the video. He pulls up, the vehicle stops in the middle of the interstate, in the middle of I-94. Trooper gets up pretty close to him, um, and he exits his vehicle. And I always pause it right there, and I point out, I zoom in on the screen, and there, the trooper is a bald-headed white male. So I, I said that becomes important in a second. So he gets out of the car, he goes to the back of the car, uses the vehicle's cover. That's all good stuff, except the car is still rolling forward. He didn't put it in park. Obviously, you're just going to have to deal with that. But here's the interesting part. After about four or five seconds, you see him run back to the door, the driver's side door of the car. And you would think, okay, he's probably putting it in park. What actually happens is he actually go, reaches in, he gets his hat out, and he puts his trooper hat on. Now, if I told you that story, most people won't believe it, but I have video that actually shows that's happening. So what happens is, is that's just an example of stuff. It was a totally unintended consequence that actually ends up in your your uh, system one thinking. Um, and that's the part we were talking right before I got cut off earlier. Um, I was talking, uh, M asked the question, well, how do we change that? Um, because it's clearly not effective. That's not what we want people doing in the middle of a felony car stop of an armed robbery suspect outside of Detroit. Um, so that's just one example that I, that I use, uh, in our classes. Um, but if you, so now we've, what happens now we've identified a behavior that we consider less desirable, whether, and every one of us here has been in a position where a boss comes up and says, Hey, do we teach that? And you look at a video or a report like, no, actually we don't. Two things have to happen. Number one, the instructor has to be humble enough to say, uh, maybe we do, but we didn't mean to because we had a, maybe a poorly prepared scenario and that happens. The question is now with uh, the guy M asked earlier, what do we do about it? Um, so if anybody's familiar, uh, I learned this from a professor at Florida state. I can't remember his name. He was an expert on behavioral change and something called the ABCs of behavioral change. Is it, I don't if anybody's heard this or is familiar with it. Absolutely brilliant in its simplicity. Um, so ABCs, there's three parts. What's so called the antecedent behavior and the consequence. So what happens is let's say we identified less desirable behavior in a video or training video, or even in a scenario based training or the FTO picks up on something. Well, the way to change that is first of all, we got to know what the uh, desire behavior looks like. So whatever they were doing, we didn't like it. So now we got to identify the behavior. The antecedent simply means this antecedent is, um, how we created the actual environment where the desirable behavior uh, can actually occur. Uh, meaning um, if I say, well, I want the officer to do this, but I haven't given them the resources or the environment or anything like that. 
the behavior can't change. And then on the opposite side is consequences. Um, ideally, consequences should be positive reinforcement, but they can't always be. So what happens is as you take a look at how to change, uh, smoking is a great example. Um, and you can apply this to scenario-based trading, but okay, people are smoking. The desirable behavior is to stop smoking. Now the A and B and C have to be closely related. So what I mean by that is everybody knows, everybody knows you're not supposed to smoke. Everybody knows that. But the consequence, and you know, well, the reason you don't smoke is because someday you could get lung cancer and die. That consequence is so far removed from the behavior, it's not likely to change it. You need to have something that happens immediately or very close to the behavior change that either rewards or, in some cases, is a negative consequence. They have to be very closely related. Also, with the antecedent, it's the same thing I said earlier. You have to have the environment, and that also has to be close, uh, close to the ABC as well. So that might be um, that somebody uses a, a nicotine patch, okay, and then they immediately get a result out of it or they start work. So the behavior changes and they have a positive consequence. We can do the exact same thing in law enforcement training. It's just, it's called the ABCs of behavioral change. And the truth is you can change almost any type of behavior with it. I love it. I think everybody had their pens out. You could hear pens clicking and everyone's taking notes. <laughs> I Google how do you spell antecedent? Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I, I, had to, I had to look it up. So. What <laughs> Like I was saying before, like there's going to be things that I'll know for next time. Um, one of the things I'm going to do is if I ever have Chris or John back on, I'm going to have like a dictionary that comes up with that that explains the terms that they're using. Because thank you, a little bit above my head. And I'll, 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 I wish I could remember his name. I can I can actually provide that name to you of the professor um, who was doing this behavioral change stuff. I, I, because as I was watching it, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, well that's how you fix performance problems. It was it was like an epiphany for me. I'm like. We could do the exact same thing, I, even if it was something like getting people to wear their body armor. Well, first of all, they have to have the body armor, right? And then um, there has to be a positive consequence for doing it. It can't be, well, if you're in a fight someday or in a gunfight someday, it'll save your life. It has to be something probably it's more closely related. Hey, if everybody on our shift wears their body armor for 30 days, somebody gets a $50 Target gift card, right? And people are like, dude, that won't work. I'm like, really? You think people do like 27, you got roll call and you're at day 27 and somebody shows up without their <laughs> body armor on, you rest assured somebody's going to say something <laughs> because like, they think it's funny or not. But bottom line, that $50 gift card will get some cops to do some stuff. So, <laughs> Hey, Adam, I was thinking if the, if the question, I guess, that the, the person asked the question is asking is why do we do um, lowest common denominator training? Oh generally in the context of like a law enforcement agency providing training, it's because what's the point of the training, right? The learning objective isn't great training. Learning objective likely was that course was not designed uh, so that the cop can win a fight. So that the cop will be protected in this, this context. It's likely that that type of training, the learning objective was, well, we have to provide eight hours of training in these categories says the state, you know, says the regulating body, in California, it's post and other agency or states, it's whatever. And they worked backwards from that, yeah. right? They got a list that said, okay, we have to provide training these, these things. Now, how are we going to do that? So right there, um, you started from a very low standard, right? Mm-hmm. The standard is, it's like when you go to uh, renew your driver's license, what are, what are you trying to accomplish there? I have to comply with the law. And I got to take this test. It has nothing to do with, are you going to be a good driver? It has even less to do with, are you a professional skilled driver? You go to some private, you know, driving company to get that. If the question is about, you know, fixing training uh, deficiencies, which is what um, John was mentioning right there, that I think is uh, maybe a separate conversation. Uh, How we train that, you know, when we teach field training officer courses is, you know, how do you fix a struggling recruit? Obviously, you try to, you know, what is the problem? Well, you know, he, he can't hear his radio. Okay. Uh, why can't he hear his radio is the next obvious question. Can he hear his radio in this context, but not that context? And the simple way that uh, we teach field training officers to try to diagnose is to do that, become a clinician and mm-hmm. uh, look for the root cause, the component uh, piece of what's wrong there. 
generally it's going to be a KSA issue of some kind, knowledge, skills, and we call it attitude. Sometimes it's referred to as ability, but can he hear his radio? Uh, does he know what a radio is, first of all? Does he know his call sign? Yes, he does. Okay. Does he understand he's supposed to answer the radio? Son, do you know when to answer the radio? Yeah. I don't think it's a knowledge issue. Is it a skill thing? Does he know how radio works, pushes the button? Uh, can he hear the radio in when there's other things going on? Is it a diverted attention multitasking issue or an attitudinal thing? Is he scared of something and he, he had some auditory exclusion where he couldn't hear it? Is it he's being aloof and doesn't, for whatever reason, want to hear his radio or doesn't want to answer the radio? Um, so I think, you know, fixing training deficiencies is generally like a KSRA issue. The way you fix that is figure out what the root cause is. Mm-hmm. What the unskilled trainer would do in that situation, uh, say the kid can't hear his radio and you're in a, a field training situation, is just start prescribing uh, methods to fix it. Uh, take your radio home and listen to it. Uh, go sit in the 911 center and listen to radio traffic. You know, just doing more and more of something that's not working isn't necessarily going to fix it. Unfortunately, that's why we see people fail out of, of courses or they, they're not doing well. It's because we're, we're just prescribing a, uh, a treatment method before we know what's really wrong with them. It'd be like going to the doctor and saying, hey, doc, my, uh, my arm hurts. He's like, yeah, we got to amputate that. You know, it's like, well, that's one treatment, which may be appropriate for necrotizing fasciitis, gangrene or something like that. But it wouldn't be appropriate if I just broke my arm because I fell down. We need to do some tests and figure out the root uh, cause first. Yeah, I'll just add a couple of quick things onto that with respect to lowest common denominator, because I'm not, I think that question can be taken two different ways. And that is, is the student themselves the the lowest common denominator or, or is the training the the lowest common denominator? So Mm -hmm. um, if the perspective is, you know, well, you've got a group of students and um, obviously some of them, you look at the bell curve of human abilities of all the officers that are in your training class, and some of them are going to be um, lowest common denominator. They're, they're never going to achieve a level of skill and performance as a lot of the other officers. And so to me, this really speaks to the professionalism at the heart of the trainer, and that is do I care enough about those officers, even though they're, they may be very poor performers, but at the end of my training class, will that officer leave with an enhanced level of performance than when they came in knowing I'll never get them to the level of a of a Tony Blower at the end of my class. That's just unrealistic. And, but I think sometimes instructors become uh, lazy. Uh, They become uncaring about those officers because as long as their motivation and their desire to train is there, they'll never get to that level. So can you, do you have the skill as a trainer to customize your training, to speak to that individual officer's level and, and, and incrementally improve them through the, through the training? Uh, the other point is, is the training the lowest common denominator? And, and an example of this would be, you know, doing your agency's firearm recall, which is an administrative uh, purpose. It's ultimately tactically useless, um, but we've got to do an agency firearms recall. So if we're going for a day or half a day of firearms training and the firearms recall is part of that, you know what, let's let's get that recall out of the way in the first 30 minutes. And so we've got that done. And now I'm going to spend the rest of the training time actually teaching you some combat skills that will help enhance your ability to save your life. Um, so we shouldn't just be default to, well, this is what the agent, the minimum standard of what the agency says we have to provide. You know what, that's a necessary, but not sufficient. end for training, we've got to go continue to push the bar and go consistently above that all the time. Yeah. I would think too, if, if, uh, police defensive tactics training was the best stuff out there, then, uh, you know, professional MMA fighters would be knocking on our door saying, gosh, can you just teach me your guys' techniques? It's just, you know, really the good stuff. And that's uh, not the case. If uh, general law enforcement training, uh, you know, was was just the best thing out there, then academia would be knocking on law enforcement's door saying, teach us your, your ways. You know, you're just, 
you know, your, your adult learning theories are just so current. Uh, it's just not often the case. So um, I don't know if it was John or somebody mentioned earlier going outside domains or maybe Chris going outside domains, right? Look at what other uh, domains are doing. Uh, aviation, medicine, mm-hmm. uh, academia. Don't it, just because you're a cop or you're a fireman or you're security or whoever's you know watching this. Don't just be like, well, everything that I need to be uh, a professional at this job and be really, really good at it is contained in the manual they handed me. Is contained is will be provided by my employer. No, you know, show a little bit of range. You know, show a little bit about uh, wanting to learn from outside domains, uh, and I think you'll, you know, you'll be better for it. I have a question, um, and it kind of pertains to that when we talk about going outside and, and getting different types of knowledge and information. Do you like? I mean, it's it's interesting because the people that are watching this and listening to this are the are the instructors, are the trainers, they're the guys that are switched on that that want to learn, right? This is addition. This is outside of what they're being paid to do. They're sitting at home right now. They're watching it. They're they're taking their own time to learn something. We're not talking about those people. We're talking about the instructors that are put in place that only do the bare minimum. Is there a responsibility on the agency to start setting instructor standards once the instructors are part of of that cadre? I, I personally, I could see uh, the validity of that. Um, again, to, for me, I, it goes back to the question I asked earlier that um, Art, Alexis Artwell taught me. Why don't I know what I think I know? And if the answer is, you know, like I said, well, that's the way we've always done it. And I see this most common in agencies. Uh, I had an old training lieutenant that used to call it. It's not a great term, but it's what he called it. He called it training incest, which was where. The instructors taught the instructors who taught the instructors and we realized you'd never stepped outside. So um, my lieutenant was very good about sending us to outside training. And there was an expectation that we would invest in ourselves uh, either. Like I said, um, I, I'm big on books, but I never read books. I listen to books on, on Audible all the time. It's finding what works for you. If you're a person that likes to, um, one of my guys, uh, he's a, a hyper nerd. He, he's an awesome instructor. He's a hyper nerd. That guy reads like two two books or a book a week or something like that. Then he types all the notes from the book and he pub, puts them on our Dropbox so the rest of us can get an idea of what the book was about. I mean, uh, so I think there's some of that about, it, um, you know, we, we should not only be the instructors, um, we should be investing in each other as well. I think there's a, there's a lot to do um, with that. So, to me, having minimum training requirements and not I, Virginia, I really thought it was ridiculous. Uh, I don't know where what the state uh, is like now, but if you were a uh, firearms instructor, when you went to firearms research, all you it was a two hour research. You didn't even shoot. Uh, if you went through your driving instructor research, you didn't drive. I mean, you were there for like two hours. They talked about updates, and that's it. If that's the only thing your agency is doing is bare minimum stuff, um, I think the agency has an obligation to invest a little bit more in their instructors and set some standards, some 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 level of standard. Thanks, John. Appreciate that. Um, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, no, I was just going to agree with what John said, and um, so aside from the the technical skill that officers need to be trainers, and we already talked about the characterological ones earlier, uh, I would agree with both Scott and John that a, a, a non-negotiable is an insatiable curiosity to learn, a dedication to lifelong learning, um, a high degree of self-doubt. And, and when I say self-doubt, I don't mean a lack of confidence, but I mean a healthy dose of uh, doubting what you know and why you know it and uh, questioning the validity of what you know going outside, as Scott said, into other domains and disciplines uh, and learning. There, there's so much education that's actually available uh, for almost no cost or very minimal cost from all sorts of online organizations around the world around uh, how we learn human performance, human factors, uh, read the research. Are you reading the research that's freely available Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's hundreds and hundreds of peer reviewed research articles that you can access for free that 
the content would directly improve your ability and performance as a trainer in, in a variety of different ways. You know, are you doing these these things? Are you that dedicated to your craft uh, and to your service to your fellow officers? Awesome. Um, before we kind of move on to uh, there, I mean, there I, we have a thousand. There's, there's so many points and so many questions here for, that people wanted to cover. Um, does anybody just have anything to touch on anything we've, we've talked about so far? John, did you have a, did you have that video? Um, you spoke, you, you referenced that video that you use in teaching. Do you actually have that available? Uh, yeah, I can pull it up. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a, it's a technique that we've been using in our decision-making classes and um, it, we've got great feedback from it. So um Folks oftentimes say, well, reasonable. That's just, they, they say, well, you can't actually teach reasonableness. I, I, it's ill-defined, I've heard people say. And my pushback on that is uh, reasonableness is a legal term of art that requires very specific articulation. Well, if you think about re, um, reasonable suspicion, for example, it's a legal term of art requiring very specific articulation. Probable cause is a legal term of art uh, that requires specific and articulable um articulation. So uh, I find it funny when people say, well, you, you, you can't just teach reasonableness. And the truth is that you can. You have to talk, focus, number one, we talk about reasonableness, we talk about behaviors and options. And here in the United States, we actually focus on behaviors and options and then answering the four, uh, we call them the gram factors. Uh, what was the severity of the crime? There's more to it than this, but uh, answering the basic questions, severity of the crime, immediate threat, active resistance and evading arrest by flight. So as a way of actually understanding what the, how the courts look at reasonableness, we started doing things we call them our decision-making exercises. We have a series of videos where the officers will watch a portion of a video and then I stop it at a, a very specific spot. And so what we ask them to do at that point is articulate the gram factors, articulate the legal authority, um, and then describe all the observable behaviors. And then um, I say, pick a force option. What, what, it, what do you think would be objectively reasonable? And the reason we do this is because if this is the way the court looks at reasonableness. If a similarly situated, well, reasonably well-trained law enforcement officer could have done the same thing, then generally that's going to be reasonable. If no reasonably well-trained, similarly situated officer could do that, it's probably going to be unreasonable. So we just kind of made an exercise out of it. So uh, the one we were talking about the other day, I'll go ahead and bring that up for you. Uh, yeah, yeah, if you can bring it up and, and throw on the screen share there, I'll share it with everybody. Um, and just while you're doing that, um, the one thing that it was, it's a commonality that I've found um, in Canada and the U.S. And, and around the world is that is that understanding of reasonableness. It's it's somewhere in, in the law in, in every country when it comes to, to criminal codes. And one... And then I, I shared this with all of you before jumping on the call. So I and you all agreed. So I don't feel I don't feel stupid sharing it. Um, but this was shared with uh, to me from uh, front of one of my mentors and instructors out of Ontario, Mike Burgess. And what he said to me was, when you're explaining reasonableness to an officer, or whether it be a security guard, a correctional officer, a sheriff, a deputy, a, a constable, doesn't matter. When you're explaining reasonableness, you take uh, if you take a cross section of the community that you live in. And it's 50 people, just everybody from all walks of life, all races, all ethnicities, all religions, um, you know, heights, weights, you know, everything, men, women, everything's different. Um, so you have this huge cross section of your community and you sit down and you explain or they watch a, the scenario as it unfolds and you explain what happened and why. And if as a group collectively say they go, yes, that makes sense, then there's a good chance of what you did was reasonable. If they come back and they say something doesn't make sense here. Something's not right. Then you, you, something was missed somewhere along the line. So, um, cause reasonableness is one of those things that it's, it's, it's so hard to define. It's, it's not, uh, it's, it's not something that the, it's not like math, right? You can't just say, well, one plus one equals two because there's so many components to it. There's thousands and thousands of variables. Yep. Is, uh, is this showing this? I'm not able to see. Is it showing the video on the screen? How's that? Do you want, do you want that full screen? Well, we can put it up full. You can talk right over it. Here we go. Yep. There you go. All right. So real quick, this just, and we do both uh, positive and negative. So in theory, here's what we have. We've got reasonably well-trained and everybody listening, we'll just call them the, the reasonably well-trained officer. 
Um, and so what we're going to do is we're going to watch this video unfold. And then we, we would, uh, I'll just show you how that we do it. So this, uh, the setup on this is um, there's a minor shoplifting complaint at a Walmart. Uh, the officer, the not even the primary officer, you'll see the secondary officer that you'll see in this video um, tried to stop him. The guy jumps in a van, drives away. And um, so he leave, he's about a, about a half mile down the road when another officer stops the vehicle. So that's, that's literally all the real fact pattern that we have at that moment. Uh, minor shoplifting complaint. He did pull away, physically pull away from the officer, jumped in his car. He was able to drive away. So uh, let's watch what happens. Okay, so I'm going to stop right there. Now, we can obviously have a conversation about the tactics of the approach and having your weapon in your hand, that type of thing. But so this is why I stop it. And I'll ask people, all right, what are, um, you know, what's the severity of the crime? Okay, it's a minor traffic infraction, but some people will say, uh, yeah, but he did flee. and said, okay, cool. Those are all things we should consider. Is he an immediate threat to the officer or others? And people will say, well, he's looking around, but it uh, looks like he's already got one handcuff on. He's trying to get the second handcuff on. I said, yep, great observation. And people say, well, you can't quite tell. He, he might be actively resisting just a little bit. Um, can't really tell. So and my point is, all I want them to do is look at the observable behaviors. That's my whole point. I'm forcing them to focus and articulate on behaviors. So we get to this point here, and I'll say, okay, now that you've done that, and they actually write them down in our workbook. Uh, they actually have to write all their thoughts down in the workbook. I'll say, all right, great. Now, what are some force options we could utilize based on the law at this point in time? It's kind of funny. People kind of look, and they're like, uh finish handcuffing them? I'm like, yeah, okay, great. That'd be a great option. Uh, escort them to the back seat. Yep. Cool. Cool. So I, once I got everybody uh, who said everything they want to say, then I let the video play out. I said, and, and you'll see what I'm talking about. This is the officer he pulled away from. If you didn't see it, he just dropped his taser on the ground. The guy's fully handcuffed, not fighting. And he drive stuns him in the neck. So I'll just leave that at that. So what I say is uh, notice that not one person said drive stun him in the neck, right? So that's probably going to be considered unreasonable, right? If you look at it. No reasonably well-trained, similarly situated officer could possibly come to the conclusion that drive stunning him in the neck was appropriate. He was fired, and uh, in fact, uh, I don't think he was criminally charged or pending. But so we use examples like that. That one's pretty extreme. But I also do the other side. I'll say, uh, let's watch the video, and people say, "Oh, wait, that he's an immediate threat." And they'll start. They'll start articulating those grand factors. I'll pause the video. I said, I make them write it all out again. I said, what are some options? And somebody might say, oh, I, we could probably tase them. Oh, hey, in this situation, we're going to use extended range, non-lethal weapons or whatever that might be. Then I play the video out and that's exactly what happens. Whatever, whatever they said is what happens. I said, listen, that's exactly that. So guess what? You guys are a, a collective of similarly, uh, reasonably well-trained, similarly situated officers. And you all said basically the same thing, these one or two options. That's the point for us is that that's how you um, get to understanding reasonableness a little bit more. And the key to it is we should be exposed. Once we've taught them uh, reasonableness in the academy, they sh and I would use this for roll call training and stuff like that, or just pushing them out to MDTs. Um, we can do these short little uh, decision-making exercises. They don't take long. We practice more of the articulation I was talking about earlier, um, and it does help us understand. It gives us a broader context. Okay, what, what is reasonable and what's not? So it's just something we started doing for what it's worth. All right, that concludes part two of our three-part episode pulled from our instructor's roundtable. 
You can view the whole video at thebreakdown.ca forward slash IRT. And make sure to join us on the last Thursday of every month. We're going to be rolling out these instructors round tables at 1800 Central. The next one on officer-involved shootings and is going to be in partnership with Caliber Press. If you're in law enforcement, you're more than familiar with Caliber Press and the content that they produce. We are so excited and honored to be We are so excited to be partnering with them for this moving forward. As always, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please consider doing so if you find this information actionable and useful to you. We appreciate the love and support as always, and I look forward to seeing you next time on The Breakdown. Stay safe.